0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest to join me via Skype is Claire Massoud, author of seven books, including The Emperor's Children, which was named a New York Times, LA Times, and Washington Post Best Book of the Year and was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. Her latest novel, The Burning Girl, tells the story of two adolescent best friends who drift apart, though for no one specific reason. Told in first person by Julia, the novel explores what it means to pass from childhood to adulthood and how that journey puts pressure on friendship, loyalty, self-knowledge. The novel also explores what it means in our greater society to be a young, vulnerable woman. We began the interview discussing the inspiration for the Burning Girl. I think any time you sit down to write a book, it's about a, a confluence of
1: different things. I often can express it as a sort of magpie experience, where you take a bauble from from one corner and a leaf from a tree and a I don't know what a, a a book from a shelf, but you you put all these things together in your head. And so there there were a number of. of of inspirations, I'd say, and one of them was a, a story from my own youth. Something that didn't happen to me or even in front of me, but but happened to someone I I knew or had known. I was a kid in Australia, and then we moved to Canada when I was uh, at the end of fourth grade, and and I kept in touch with my friends there by writing letters, as one did in those days, and there, there was this story of something. That uh, happened in, in the life of one of our classmates that that I only ever knew sort of third hand and that that I that haunted me and I always wanted to try to write some sort of story about it and I sat down when I wrote the Emperor's Children uh, it which is now a long time ago I started that over fifteen years ago and 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 I had in my mind you know which of these you know which of these two stories that are that are in my head will I tackle now and and. And that story was, you know, one of them, but, but then I think, uh, you know, somehow I couldn't figure out what that story, um, was or, 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 or how to tell it in, in some more immediate way until, uh, having, you know, I have, we have children and our kids are now 16 and 13. We have a niece and nephew, 19 and 17, which means that in the past sort of eight or nine years, we've, we've. We've watched girls go through, uh, we have son, you know, a son and a nephew, but we've watched the girls go through adolescence in a particular, uh, you know, in the particular way girls do. And, and, and that being witness to that, seeing that experience from, from an adult perspective, reliving at that time, you know, as you're watching the, the new generation go through it, you're reliving experiences of your own. Uh, I, I think it, it made that time of
0: life just very immediate and vivid to me. Well, I want to talk about the title and how it relates to the story because I couldn't separate, and I don't know if you're supposed to when an author does this, the epigraph from the story. And the epigraph is from Elizabeth Bishop's Casa Bianca poem, which is a play on a, a much older poem. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that poem and including it and what it meant to you.
1: So the epigraph, uh, which, which I have in front of me and I can just read, is just part of a poem by Elizabeth Bishop called Casabianca. And the section that I use as the epigraph is, loves the boy stood on the burning deck, trying to recite the boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the sun stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. And loves the burning boy. So the, of course the original poem, which is the boy stood on the burning deck, was a um, 19th century parlor poem, uh, a very popular poem that that people would stand up and recite. And I think I always loved about the Elizabeth Bishop poem, aside from loving the the music and the rhythm and so on. I I, I love the sort of meta meta nature, if you will, of it. That 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 she's saying the poem is love, but the but the expression of the poem is also love, the telling of the story, if you will. When the line loves the burning boy, it's both the boy on the burning deck and the boy trying to recite the burning deck. Both of those things are, are love, if you will. And I think as I, as I thought about this, these characters, they're both, Julia and Cassie, are burning girls of different kinds. And, and Julia is telling the story, of, if you will, of Cassie burning, but it's also a burning of her own and, 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 and a story um, that burns in her.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Claire Massoud, author of The Burning Girl. I was thinking about the original poem, which is really about this boy's fierce loyalty. His father says, stay on the boat. Don't leave until I tell you. And he stays while the boat burns and he dies with it because he had this loyalty to his family. And both... Julia and Cassie had incredible loyalties in their life. So basically the story for our listeners is Julia's first person and she's talking about her, her friendship with Cassie and how it changed as they reached adolescence and Cassie turned more into maybe a dangerous girl and Julia took more of the straight and narrow path. And Cassie's mother, who she was very close to and grew up with just her because her father had died... Um, took in a a boyfriend who moved in with them who Cassie did not like. So it was both Julia's loyalty to Cassie. She never gave up on her and their bond and Cassie's loyalty to her mother when they both were also suffering because of uh, things that were going on in those relationships. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that.
1: I think one of the things, you know, talking about
0: a sort of perhaps beginning
1: at the end, I reviewed a book by Magda Szabo called The Door. Uh, a, few, a couple of years ago, It was a, it, she was a Hungarian writer who died about 10 years ago, and uh, the book had originally been published in the 80s in the Hungarian and then uh, had been translated into English, but sort of had languished in obscurity and was retranslated and published, uh, just recently. And it's a book that made me, um, that made me question so many things. It's a story about a a woman writer who's very much like the author and her relation, long-term relationship with her housekeeper who is, is sort of fierce and complicated and mysterious, um, and, and and one of the things that, that you come to realize at the end of the book is that even though these women have this very close bond and love each other, they just they have very different ideas of what loyalty is. They have very different ideas of what it is to um to devote yourself to someone. And um and and for me, uh that, that, that book was very affecting for all sorts of reasons and to do with, you know, things in my personal life and relationships with people um in my life. But it was something that was, I think, that 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 very specific awareness or consciousness uh, of of how differently people understand these same words um, or concepts that are that are meaningful, so profound and meaningful to each of us, but may mean something quite different, right? So, so that that was something that in writing about these two characters, Cassie and Julia, that I. Um, that, that was very much part of telling their stories. And so Cassie's loyalty, for example, to her, to her mother, uh, as, as it, it, that's her primary loyalty and it, you know, or has been all her life, her primary loyalty a, as, as, as the child of a single parent, the single child of a single parent that has been her loyalty. And when her mother finds a new relationship, she, uh, in, instead of, instead of, and she doesn't like this man, but instead, and, and can't get on with him, but instead of, of telling her mother, you know, you've got, you've got to break up with him. I, I can't take it. She feels that what it means to be loyal is to grant her mother, this happiness, even at great personal cost to herself. And, um, and, and that isn't something that people, her friends outside, uh, outside that mother daughter bond would necessarily agree with as being, as what it would mean to be loyal in that, in that case, you know? So, um, and then on the other hand, Julia sees trying to, in some way, trying to save Cassie as, as her, as what it means to be a loyal friend. And and that may not be Cassie's understanding of what loyalty is. So I, I think, you know that that's just as it were one word. <laughs> Loyalty is one word. It happens with so many. What what's family? What's love? What's what's generosity? What's, you know, there there are all of these abstract uh big abstract emotional ideas uh and that that we carry around and live with and we and we talk to each other about. It. And I think one of the things that's that that I was also you know, writing, trying to write about in this book is is this passage from childhood uh, through adolescence, where where in childhood uh, language is almost—it's not right to say it's extraneous, but but there is there is there are a number of things. One is a, one is a faith that your uh, that your friendship doesn't. Need words doesn't need language. You and also that if there are things you don't know, you will know them. If things aren't clear now, well, you're a kid, and those things will eventually become clear. And and what happens? There's that lovely line in Wordsworth that that I allude to about trailing, you know, children trailing clouds of glory. There's this sort of divine simplicity, if you will, in childhood um, that is that is lost and that is that it really is a sort of the fall from eden as you as you come into language you come into self-consciousness you come into this understanding <clears throat> that your world is not the whole world the connections you assume are, are are immediate and unspoken the minute you start to examine them or that they start to be that they that they're articulated the abyss opens and and that's when you realize that as a person you're alone and that there's a gulf you know, there is a gulf between you and and the next person. That that, that, that words is, is is words are what you have to, for communication, but they are inadequate. That that you know that that all these things you thought were were unboundary, if you will, ha- have these have these
0: separations between them. One of the notes I wrote at the end of the book was sort of the inescapable aloneness of being, and that we are always alone and usually i find that a lot of people don't articulate that until much later in life but julia got this she's a very articulate intellectually precocious and spiritually precocious girl she examines her feelings and she understood that we are all ultimately alone and i i was curious about creating her voice and her knowledge and understanding of the world and her age and how you, if you struggled with that when you're writing a, a child who is first person but who has to have this awareness of herself in the world, if you ever stopped yourself and said, does she know too much? Does she know too little?
1: It's a, That's a very good question. And I think, you know, one of the things about writing this novel that was a real challenge for me was that uh, couldn't be third person, certainly wasn't going to be second person. It has to be in, it had to be in first person because, because it is, it is as much as anything else. It's a story about the limits of our understanding, the limits of our knowledge and how much we invent and project and how much uh, Julia is imagining what, um, what, what those experiences may be. So I, at various points was thinking through, could I tell this in third person and thereby give, you know, give, Kath, uh, give Julia more leeway, right. Intellectually and so on, or, or, or to articulate, you know, for the articulation of her experiences that, that things could be, that she could experience things that would be articulated without her, them necessarily being filtered through her consciousness. And that was not possible. So it, it all had to go through her. And so then it was a matter for me of the language. And and for a long time I was really trying to to uh make the language as straightforward and simple as possible, which I I don't know if you've read earlier things by me, but that is not my natural, just not natural to me to to do that. <laughs> and there there came a point where uh, you know, I think because I'm 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 also somebody who cares a lot about precision, at some point I was just um, having to compromise a little bit in some in some places, diction-wise. I just had to. But I tried very hard to make the syntax and the the form, as it were, as straightforward as possible. I don't think Julia thinks or experiences anything that someone her age wouldn't or doesn't. I actually do think that that process of, of passing through adolescence is one of discovering that you're alone. I think that whether or not young people articulate that that is the experience. And I certainly recall that as my own experience. And I certainly feel I've witnessed that as the experiences of my kids and nieces and nephews.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Claire Massoud, author of The Burning Girl. It might seem obvious, but I'd love to hear you articulate it. In in the difference between writing the story about boys versus girls. So in the poem, in the beginning, it's a boy and you're raising a boy and a girl. So what is it about raising girls or writing about adolescence for girls that is attractive to you? Goodness, why is that attractive
1: to me? Well, I think there's a fundamental thing that even in its mystery, it's more accessible to me. For one thing, because I have the experience of having been an adolescent girl, but, but also because I think Girls just generally, you know, back to this question of talking about it, you know, there's that wonderful, uh, I don't know if you ever read it, uh, the French writer Marie Cardinal has a book called The Words to Say It. I feel that, um, that, 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 that girls are, are just much more likely to have the words to say it. They're just much more likely to articulate things. So, as I say, even, even while many things remain mysterious, often the experience that girls go through are, are just more articulable or, or seem so. It's not that there's anything less interesting or, or less complicated about boys' experience. but Are there more narratives of boys' adolescent experience? I mean, I feel there must be, <laughs> um, but maybe of a different sort. You know, I have in mind David Mitchell's, right after Cloud Atlas, that he, he wrote a book called Black Swan Green, which, which is uh, the sort of novel about growing up that you might think of as, as often a first novel, but it wasn't his first novel. Um, and it has a it has some wonderful and hilarious stuff about being a sort of teenage boy in the suburbs in England in the seventies and and it actually is reminds me very much of of, of books I've read a, a, about girls' experience but when I think of boys' adolescent experiences you know was huck i guess Huck Finn was not an adolescent, but <laughs> you know I think you think of much more of sort of action rather than interiority so I don't know i mean i, I the short answer is just it's a subject dear to my heart because of the life that I've lived and the family that I have.
0: Yeah. I I felt there was a sense in, in, in the story too, of, of a looming doom maybe that, that awaited young women, which was, you know, abduction. And I felt like that was present throughout the book that, that the maturation of their bodies, even though at times it was very subtle, but that, that they, they, were much more prone to be victims. And I felt like that was something that was on the edges of of most of Julia's story.
1: As a parent in the past, whatever, as I say, my my niece is a bit older, call it 10 years. I am horrified and dismayed to come to recognize the bombardment of narratives of violence against women of one kind, Girls and women, violence against girls and women, but, and it's not just abduction. It's just it, it, it is the narratives of of adulthood are uh, of sort of coming into adulthood for girls are just very very dark, and that's something you know that the 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 endemic misogyny of our of our culture um, is pretty distressing. I, I, I think that when I was young, there was a moment when when a certain <laughs> a certain amount of attention was on those on those issues and now in the face of so many cultural crises i don't think that that's to the fore i don't think that that the the sort of underlying violence against women is is at the forefront of our cultural conversation but but it, but it is something as a parent of a of a daughter that you become aware that not only of, of what you yourself grew up with, but of, of what what 's being handed to her uh, without her even being aware of it just through through news stories but through film and television and and novels, and the narratives are dark and in some way, I wanted both to address that and to, and to try to provide some other narrative however however slightly different
0: in the story. Julia watches Cassie once this man moves into her house and she's she does not like him at all. That's when her real rebellion starts and her, her internal pain. She finds new friends. She runs away and she's searching for her father who her mother has told her has died. And mm-hmm. she sort of believes that maybe that's a lie and goes searching for him. And there's a childhood place that Julia and Cassie play in, which was an old asylum. And, you know, the, these questions about our sanity and back to the stories we tell ourselves and what we choose to believe. I wanted to ask you about sanity in these characters and, and how sanity might rub up against our emotional life just because we need to survive and, and just what you were thinking about sanity when you were writing this. Our cultural understanding of
1: sanity changes over time. Right. And when I, when even, you know, when I was young, it was the tail end of a, of, of, of a cultural narrative about, about sanity, that there were people who were sane and there were people who were insane. And that was something that had, I mean, it's Foucault's histoire de la folie. Right. Um, he, he wrote that epic uh, book about the history of madness that that is about it is is precisely about the ways in which society, in order to create boundaries, created institutions, right? That that you incarcerate the insane, you separate the people who are insane from those who we consider sane, you know, the sick from the healthy, and um and that it, and and society is making is making an assertion that those boundaries can be clearly. Drawn, and that you're either on one side of it or the other. And, and you, you basically sort of send anybody who's, who's beyond the pale out to this, you know, to a closed institution in the woods. And you say, okay, well, you just stay there till you get better, whatever that means. And, and yet we have moved in the past 40 or 50 years from, from, from that model of society to one that doesn't make those uh, distinctions nearly as firmly to one that, that believes in a much more inclusive understanding of mental health, if you will, in some ways, right? And then not in others. And, and so, so it's actually a fairly, um, it, it's, it's a fairly sort of complicated transitional time I think we're where, where in now where, where a lot of, uh, of questions can be raised about what is care? How are people, how are we caring for each other Um, you know, and each other's mental health. Um, That's a sort of broader subject. But in terms of these girls and their lives, as precisely as they, um, as they are forming their senses of self in some imminently adult way, right, in some no longer in childhood way, they aren't thinking, am I Mentally ill? Am I insane? Um, those aren't, as it were, categories that they, they would use about themselves. I don't, but the broader society will pass judgment regardless, if that makes sense. We may not lock people up in the way that we once did. I mean, you know, people, I think, still voluntarily commit themselves to institutions when, when they feel it necessary, but certainly not in the way that we used to. But society judges and, and in an almost Shirley Jackson like way, you know, there's this sort of normative pressure, you know, thing of, of Cassie's trajectory is that it is outside the norm. Whatever she gets up to, this is the, as it were, the local society wants as a story to be able to contain her, to close it down. They want to close it down. And that uncertainty about where to put her or how to, how to define her or how to talk about her is very problematic for most people in, you know, in the book. And, 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 and I think most people in the world, we want to be able to categorize things. We put simply, we want to be able to have a story that has an arc, a meaning and an ending. We want that.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Claire Massoud, author of The Burning Girl. Can you share a passage that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So I thought to read
1: just quickly, it isn't isn't long, a poem uh, by Louise Gluck called Midsummer. On nights like this, we used to swim in the quarry the boys making up games requiring them to tear off the girls' clothes, and the girls cooperating because they had new bodies since last summer, and they wanted to exhibit them, the brave ones leaping off the high rocks, bodies crowding the water. The nights were humid, still. The stone was cool and wet, marble for graveyards for buildings that we never saw, buildings in cities far away. On cloudy nights, you were blind, Those nights, the rocks were dangerous, but in another way, it was all dangerous. That was what we were after. The summer started. Then the boys and girls began to pair off, but always there were a few left at the end. Sometimes they'd keep watch. Sometimes they'd pretend to go off with each other like the rest, but what could they do there in the woods? No one wanted to be them, but they'd show up anyway as though some night their luck would change. Fate would be a different fate. At the beginning and at the end though, we were all together. After the evening chores, after the smaller children were in bed, then we were free. Nobody said anything, but we knew the nights we'd meet and the nights we wouldn't. Once or twice at the end of summer, we could see a baby was going to come out of all that kissing. And for those two, it was terrible, as terrible as being alone. The game was over. We'd sit on the rocks smoking cigarettes, worrying about the ones who weren't there. And then finally walk home through the fields because there was always work the next day. And the next day we were kids again sitting on the front steps in the morning, eating a peach. Just that, but it seemed an honor to have a mouth. And then going to work, which meant helping out in the fields. One boy worked for an old lady building shelves. The house was very old, maybe built when the mountain was built. And then the day faded. We were dreaming, waiting for night. Standing at the front door at twilight, watching the shadows lengthen, and a voice in the kitchen was always complaining about the heat, wanting the heat to break. Then the heat broke. The night was clear. And you thought of the boy or girl you'd be meeting later. And you thought of walking into the woods and lying down, practicing all those things you were learning in the water. And though sometimes you couldn't see the person you were with, there was no substitute for that person. The summer night glowed. In the field, fireflies were glinting. And for those who understood such things, the stars were sending messages. You will leave the village where you were born. And in another country, you'll become very rich, very powerful. But always you will mourn something you left behind, even though you can't say what it was. And eventually, you will return to seek it.
0: So tell me a little bit about why you chose this or why it influenced you. It's a poem, obviously, about being
1: young, a little bit older than the girls are in, in, in my novel, but, but about that experience of adulthood on its way, right? Of sexual discovery of autonomy and freedom of summer nights and where there's danger and risk and thrill, but also fear, you know, and, and, and then the next day you're a child again, eating a peach on the porch, um, that, that, that it's, it's, it's like it's almost like the tide. You come in a little, then you go back. You come in a little further, and then you go back. And and also just the the physical landscape of it. Um, my book opens with a quarry, and um, and that in in a way was Louise Glück's quarry that I was imagining. I was also imagining an actual quarry, but but uh, that I that I have been to and know. But but I but I think there's some way in which the metaphorical echoes of of Louise Glück's Corey were with me the whole way
0: can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you like sure i thought i
1: would uh, would read you know we we were speaking about the projection the way that julia imagines uh some of cassie's experiences without having been present for them and so this is this is one of the earlier moments when she does this after the girls have grown apart this is a moment um when, when Julia is, is imagining, very early on, is imagining what um, Cassie may have experienced. Uh, whatever the reason she was walking there, what did it feel like when the car pulled over, the headlights turning onto you like a blinding heat, breaking from the chain of traffic, and the car, what car? You couldn't tell in the dark if it was familiar or unknown, nor, not what kind of or what color it was, Like a nightmare, the window rolling down and a man telling you to get in, and only then do you realize that he's someone you know. He's your next door neighbor, and relief washes through you like new blood all at once. A change in the inner temperature of your body, except that then he's insisting you get into the car. The one thing your mother told you never to do, never to get into a car with a strange man. But he's not strange. He's Mr. O'Coin, big and hairy as as a bear. You can see the fur on the back of his paw on the steering wheel in the reflected light. Then there's a new cold wash inside you. It is strange that he's insisting in this way. You don't know him well. You know his wife and dogs better. And haven't you been told that some high percentage of abductions are by people the victim knows? How is it you're in this situation by the side of the highway where a large man is maybe going to force you into his vehicle? He must make way more than twice you do. You don't stand a chance. And if you don't get into Mr. O'Coin's car, how long will it be before another car arrives, another window rolls down, and another man, a face you don't yet know, the face of your nightmares insists in the same way. And tell me about this. As I mentioned, this is this is one of the um, first instances where Julia really is just full on imagining what Cassie's experience has been. Uh, she's heard a story. Uh, the neighbor, Mr. O'Coyne, has told Julia's father, the dentist, that he picked Cassie up on the side of the road. And then, and then Julia just, ima- Cassie doesn't say anything about it to Julia and Julia imagines all of these things. She, and then Julia does go on, go on and say, but at the end of sort of describing this, this sort of very stressful, uh, experience that she imagines, she does at the end think, but I may be imagining this and maybe Cassie's experience wasn't anything like that at all. Um, and and I wanted uh, so I I wanted um, in writing it to try to what I you know I, I rewrote it a number of times because because I wanted it to have those different layers uh, both the immediacy and hopefully tension of of uh, of that fear because I I, I know that um, you know that that's a fear that many young women have many women have you don't have to be young um about you know it's it's a narrative that we have that we have seen or read or heard about um and that and that is you know a sort of nightmare narrative um but only if you let it be right <laughs> so i wanted it to have that tension and also to to be uh to have the remove of us knowing, of the reader knowing that it's, that it's, a, it's, an, it's an imagined tension or an imagined terror um, and that it may have, it may simply just not even, n- not, even not be true <clears throat> in the sense that there was no danger, but not be true in the sense that maybe that isn't what Cassie experienced. Where do you write? Where
0: do I write? Um, wherever I can,
1: with a pen and a paper, wherever I can.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh,
1: I think I don't, I don't have to try to get away from it. All of life will pull me away from it. It's, it's getting to the writing that's the hard part. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My first reader is always my husband, um, who, who is a writer, too, and a, and, and a critic. And I always joke that it's easier for me and hard for him because I just want him to be my loving husband and an honest critic and tell me that he loves it. <laughs> he just has to square that circle. And how have you dealt with rejection? Um, you know, I think over time, it gets easier and and I think that's something i i uh, I try to tell my students, but again, you know you you feel maybe just some things you just have to live through or 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 experience on your own, and it doesn't get easier until it gets easier. But I think it at some point, um, to realize that as long as you're doing what you want to do and believe in, obviously you want to take constructive criticism you want to make your work the best that you can but in the same way um in the same way that you know you don't you not everybody you want to not everybody you meet do you think you want to be friends with um by the same token not everybody is going to is going to love what you write you know these things are very personal and, and subjective as 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 um as my literary agent once said to me you know, if you like a song and your friend doesn't like the song, do you think it's a bad song because they don't like it? No, <laughs> you just think, you know, he likes that song and I don't like that song. It's okay, right? So, so I think, um, you know, you have to, you have to, as a writer, you have to cultivate your own sense of mission and purpose and 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 what you believe in and 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 what your criteria are, and then how how the world reacts is a completely different thing. It's separate.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: Oh, what is my favorite word? You know, I have in my head, um, it is not my favorite word. There's that wonderful uh, Beckett play, Crap's Last Tape, where, where the, the, it's a one man play where Crap, the character, starts out by saying, spool, spool, spool. Spool, spool is a pretty good word.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Claire Massoud, author of the novel The Burning Girl. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.